Welcome to Mind Games, a podcast about D&D and TTRPG. But if you think about it, all games are mind games. I'm Rowan Corbettan and my co-host is Catherine Francis. Hey everyone! Welcome back to our second episode. Uh, if you're just joining us actually and you're right near the beginning of season one, we've actually released both of these episodes for you so you can get a real taste of what we're trying to do here. This podcast is one in which we bring in scholars and experts from psychology and other behavioral sciences and try to figure out how their research informs or is informed by games like D&D and other TTRPGs. Catherine, who's on our episode today? Me! <laughs> how, are you, uh, how are you looking forward to, you know, revisiting your voice for the next hour? Not, well, I'm not looking forward to hearing my own voice. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to hearing Ethan's voice, though. And I'm definitely interested in hearing about the topics that we discuss, because obviously... From a very biased perspective, I think they're very important. Yeah, I mean, so a little bit of inside baseball here, but we are recording the intro sometime after this conversation has taken place. And you haven't listened to yourself for months, right? We recorded this a while back. Months. Months. <laughs> Do you remember what you said? Do you remember if you felt like it was a good good showing? Yeah, of course. It's, of course. A, it's a great showing from me and Ethan. <laughs> Um, and the, the topic's fascinating, you know, moral implications of playing D&D. You can't get more interesting than that. So you and I have actually been doing a little bit of research on morality in D&D and identities. Um, why don't I throw to you, like, what's, what's the elevated pitch on that? Why is morality in imaginary spaces interesting? That is a great question. <laughs> uh, my, my immediate instinct on this is that having played games for so many years, growing up with games seeing those moral narratives coming through in games and then particularly with imaginative play in D&D you see such a difference in how much of people's kind of moral compass they take with them into these spaces mm. you know some people go in and they act like this evil tyrant that does the complete opposite of what they might do in the real world and then other people like myself tend to carry this strong moral identity with them into spaces and you know I, I just, even if I'm playing as a totally different character, I'm not going to kick a chicken in D&D. &D. It just <laughs> doesn't feel right. That's a very specific example. <laughs> That's the one that I always think about. <laughs> so actually, I ran a one-shot D&D for some of our guests, Talia from the first episode, and some guests who are yet to come um, in a one-shot game of D&D. &D, and a comment that a lot of them brought up was how uncomfortable they felt doing certain immoral acts. Uh, I've never had that problem personally, but it's interesting to hear how real and visceral it is for so many others. Yeah, and I think it's these it's these individual differences that are absolutely fascinating. And then it's when you think about the direction that your identity, your identity moves in and those moral values move in, right? So it's not just you going into those worlds, it's do you take things back from those worlds to who you are in, in, in real life. And I find it absolutely fascinating. So, Catherine, we're going to go and listen to you and Ethan Landis for the next hour or so. We're going to come back together and, well, maybe in this one, there will be some uh, self-reflection in a way that there was there, there wouldn't be in other episodes. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Self-reflection and metacognition for sure. <laughs> All right, well, stick around for the conversation and then join us for... The brief discussion afterwards. Enjoy the episode, everyone. <laughs> We're getting better. <laughs> hey, 
Hey everyone, it's still me. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to give a brief warning that towards the end of this episode, there is a discussion of rather graphic violence that may not be appropriate for everyone. It's not sexual violence, but it does involve sexual adjacent topics. So when it comes to the point of me, Rowan, discussing a rather morally complicated and surprising situation, if you're sensitive to such things, maybe you want to skip ahead about a minute. Well, welcome today to Dr. Ethan Landis and Dr. Catherine Francis. In that order, why are, why are you here with me today? I'm looking forward to finding that out as much as you are. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a philosopher of philosophy, so I specialize in how it is that we learn things in philosophy, like how it is, how it is that philosophers come to know like moral truths and stuff. So I expect that's maybe why I'm here, given Catherine's expertise. Yeah, well, I, I describe myself as a moral psychologist, um, but I take a really keen interest in kind of lots of different areas of experimental philosophy as well. But I'm particularly interested in how people make decisions about what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's bad and how moral values are core to their personalities and their identities. But alongside that kind of academic expertise, I'm also an avid video gamer and I'm really interested in moral decisions within these kind of virtual spaces. And so I think that's definitely why I'm here, kind of bringing those two things together. And to address Ethan's point there, Ethan, you and Catherine have been collaborating for some time. Catherine, Catherine and I have been collaborating for some time. I think there's a lot of value in triangulating your collaborative expertise to kind of make sure that Catherine and I just don't have the same conversations we always have. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had nothing to add there. <laughs> So what's your, so Catherine has actually been playing at my D&D table for, wow, nearly two years now. But Ethan, uh, what's your history? What's your background with D&D, with tabletop role playing, with kind of imaginative spaces? Yeah, so like Catherine, I'm an avid video gamer. So that's, that's first off. And uh, I love Fallout as much as I think anyone else does. Uh, so that's definitely in the background. But I, during, right before COVID kicked off, I started a D&D game, which was like interrupted by COVID, but we ended up playing like a campaign. I was at the University of St. Andrews. It was based, it was based in medieval St. Andrews. So, oh, wow. and like the person running it was a medievalist. The, the dungeon master was a medievalist. So that was, that gave it a fun little angle. And we had a, we had sort of the classic problem where our team just didn't work together. And I think like, I actually disliked one of my great friends more after that game than I did before. Like, I think our relationship was actually strained by the difference in our characters, but yeah, no, I, that campaign went probably 20 sessions, I think over about a year. Uh, before COVID happened. And so that was, that's my background here as well. And Catherine, what's, so I've already mentioned that you play at my table, but you obviously had a life before me as your GM. What's, uh, what's your history with tabletop role playing? Yeah. I mean, by the way, it's closer to three years, not two. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're right. Incredible. It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but before, um, before that I'd been playing D&D &D quite a lot. So I really got into it during my PhD actually. So I was part of a huge kind of Marie Curie funded big interdisciplinary program. And it turned out quite quickly that there were quite a few people with interest in kind of imaginative play. And so we started a D&D campaign as part of that. And we did several sort of shorter burst games during that. So, yeah, I've always been really into these kind of imaginative spaces. 
So there's something I haven't discussed with anyone here, and I kind of have a personal prejudice against it because I'm not really a video gamer. I dip in and out of games every couple of years. Now, Catherine, I know you are a gamer. Uh, You are also empirically involved in VR. Ethan, I know you have an interest in trying to figure out what VR is and what it represents to kind of our behavior, our brains and our values. But maybe let's just open it up initially. In what way do you see video games as kind of an imaginary place? I mean, my bias is that because it's so prescribed already, because it's so articulated by the visuals, by the mechanics, even the most open-ended sandboxy game still feels vastly more constrained to me than a game of D&D. How did the both of you reconcile the imagination and the pretends when it comes to something like a video game? I think I reject the premise of your question because... Philosophers. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it's not... Like it is, it is more, there is less freedom of choice than on a tabletop game, but in some ways the, the choice is still there. It's just a bit more managed than you would find in a and d game. I think a good RPG game, especially will like have interesting options for you. And there's still like interesting moral decision-making to be made in those options. Now it's not quite, you can't just like walk off and throw a birthday party for one of your party members when you feel like it. you don't have that freedom. But I don't know, in many ways, it's it's more in your face because I think a lot of role-playing games revel in the moral aspect of it. Um, one of my favorite RPG games is Fallout 3. It In some ways, it's really in your face that they put this moral aspect of it. You have a karma meter that goes up and down and it tells you when it goes up and down. You know, at a certain point in the game, your dad, who's Liam Neeson talks through what you did and like if you played a good good campaign a good character he's really sort of effusive and oh my son aren't you aren't you so great (laughs) that you did these things if you do something really bad and he he gets really disappointed and i I, i'm one of those people that has a hard time playing a bad character in these games and i did a bad run through once and like hearing Liam Neeson be like, son, I'm so disappointed in you was, was like genuinely <laughs> like a difficult experience for me uh, above and beyond playing as a slaver and doing the slaver quest lines. Yeah, I think I agree with what Ethan has said. I the One of the first things that came to my mind was um, obviously when you think about imagination, there are these different senses that imagination and kind of vividness of mental imagery crosses right and for me my visual mental imagery is quite weak so in many ways in a a video game carves out that visual imagery for me in a way that I can't do in my own mind's eye Mm. or my lack of mind's eye I yeah I I think for me there's not there's not a huge disparity and and most gaming environments I'll say gaming or imaginative environments tend to have rules in place so even in D&D the options aren't completely open to you. You are constrained by these kind of rules. And so I just see that every game you play or every imaginative environment you go into has a set of rules. That's that's. I, so I see quite a lot of overlap. What what do the both of you think about, I guess, the differences? And, and, I, and by that, I mean the kind of desirable differences between a, a video game and a tabletop game. I, 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 love, I love playing D&D, but there's... I found it very exhausting and hard to do after a day of work. I didn't really have the brain power often to have as much fun as I wanted to because it's hard to to put this cognitive load into keeping all these things in track. And I think actually, Catherine, I think I'm like you in that I don't really have particularly strong mental imagery. And video games offload that 
in a lot of ways where they keep track of the world in a way that you don't have to. And uh, in some ways that I think makes it easier for me to like deal with sort of these more interesting, complex role-playing situations than than a tabletop game so i'll speak in favor of dnd now <laughs> but i'll use the same argument that ethan just gave so i think it's um i always think of this almost like the decision to of which movie you're going to watch so if you want an easy movie that's going to entertain you and it's going to provide that kind of narrative but without too much personal investment i think many video games provide that for the reasons that you you really nicely just explained, Ethan. D&D is hard, it's harder because there is this, this character development, this character integration. You're stepping into these worlds that you're formulating yourself with others in a collaborative way. So the effort is higher. But I think what you get back emotionally in terms of investment is also much higher. So it's almost like choosing you know, the really difficult film to watch that's probably going to play on your mind for a couple of weeks and it's exhausting but sometimes it's totally worth it. <laughs> um, so I see them as, yeah, I, I often see it like that. Yeah, and I think we are going to have to return, Catherine, to your character, Looper, that at least within our table, um, famously just left for, for kind of reasons you're alluding to there, but, but we'll circle back to that. So both of you are largely interested in morality. I won't ask you to kind of define what morality is in the real world because... That's not this podcast. But I guess maybe can I ask you to reflect upon the role morality might play in imaginary spaces? So Ethan, interestingly, was talking about the cognitive load of imagining it in fictive spaces and tracking everything and then getting that direct feedback from Liam Neeson. I mean, what does it mean to be moral in a space where there are no real consequences? Yeah, I, I really like that question. I don't really know where to start. But I think so that the first thing that comes to my mind is morality is this guiding tool and a regulator for your own behavior. And in that case, imagination is actually absolutely critical, right? So before you make a decision, you often engage in this imaginative process about the consequences of your actions. So they might not be tangible, they might not have happened yet. But just imagining them is enough <laughs> to guide your decision making. Um, and that goes back to kind of core social psychology, right? A lot of so social psychology is around just imagining the presence of other people and just the imagined presence of others changes how you respond. Yeah, just simulating certain contexts and influences. Yeah, exactly. So that, that simulation of future consequences is definitely a guider of moral behavior. So I think cr imagination is absolutely critical for that. It's really interesting that you talk about kind of environments where there aren't tangible consequences for moral decisions. And that relates to some of my research using virtual reality, because in a lot of the studies that we've run, and actually Ethan and I have been doing some of this work together as well, we're giving people these virtual simulations of moral dilemmas where they're making life and death decisions, but those life and death decisions aren't real life and death decisions. Nobody's actually going to die. But you can see in how people react, their physiological responses, what they say afterwards, that they take those decisions very seriously. And in some cases, they, provo you know, they provoke these really strong emotional reactions. Yeah, I'd like to build off of what Catherine just said there, which is moving around to my area of expertise, which is like how philosophers do philosophy and that philosophers have basically built an entire the entire field is built around imagined situations. They sometimes don't like admitting this to themselves, but huge, huge swaths of philosophy and some of the most influential works of philosophy guiding what pe what philosophers think morality is, what people think causation is. Pick your 
pick your like deep philosophical question. These have been guided by imagined situations and people making judgments about what would be the case in imagined situations. And so the the one that's broken out into the mainstream, the trolley case, is you know came out of philosophers thinking about is there a difference between someone someone dying because I wanted them to die versus someone dying as a consequence of me wanting something else? The literature, in many ways, is still sort of cycling around questions that were raised by people's reactions to that thought experiment when effective altruists come out and say things like, well, we should try to maximize good. They have to respond to the case that people think in thought experiments that Sure, you can you can pull a lever to save five people at the cost of one, but you shouldn't cut up someone in a hospital to save five people in waiting for an organ transplant. Like people like effective altruists have to like deal with the fact that we have these sort of differing judgments about this imagined case. Sure, fine, pulling a lever, great, that's moral. Cutting someone up in a hospital to save five people, that's icky. And moral philosophy and people dealing with ethics have to respond to these concerns to be taken seriously and to defend like their view of what morality is. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. I remember learning about the trolley problem by Philippa Foote in, in, in undergrad. And of course, the, the classic example, and there are many variants, is there's a very large man on top of a bridge. There's a trolley or a tram or a train coming along. If you push this very large man, somehow that's going to stop a whole train um, and the five workers will be saved. I spent a lot of time thinking about morality in the last few years, largely because of Catherine's influence, spending a lot of time thinking about pretend play. And the thing that really blows me away, particularly about the classic footbridge problem, is I can't ignore the value of the, quote, life of the five workers. You've given me a scenario which I have no reason to care about in any sense. You're not even incentivizing me financially or anything. And yet, like, I will labor over the decision to push or not and evaluate myself in that context. Why is it that we can't, or why do you think we have so much trouble divorcing ourselves in in such an imaginary context? From my point of view, as uh, from the point of view of philosophy, I don't know if we necessarily distinguish those two. Speaking very technically, getting a bit, maybe this is getting a bit too far in the weeds, but what a lot of philosophers will say about these cases is, well, if I, if I watch, if I like watch the situation in real life, if I watch someone like, or if I'm in the situation where I actually pull a lever or have to push someone off a bridge to stop you know, a runaway trolley. Well, that's, that's told us something about what's actually true. In this case, I should or shouldn't push this. Whereas in these imagined cases, what I get at is what's possibly true. So it's lower what's necessarily true. And oftentimes they'll say like, well, it's, an, it's necessarily permissible or something like that. So it's necessarily permissible that you can pull the lever to save the person. So there, what you're saying, the difference is, well, what's actual versus what's necessary or possible. And according to philosophers, that there's not that big of a difference. What we see is like we know something's possible because we see it. From the point of view of philosophers, the difference is like, well, it's either hypothetical or not, but there's not that big of a difference because we're not dealing with what's actual as philosophers. We're dealing with what's necessary between as philosophers. So what what merely happens in this world isn't that interesting. Uh, and so we can sort of, in some way, put ourselves in other possible situations, and that will help us build like that will help us build 
a, a broader picture of what's going on in like this deep sense of reality. Or so they say, I, I don't necessarily endorse this, but <laughs> from the from the point of view of philosophers, yeah, like the fact that I'm doing this and I, I don't see a trolley case isn't necessarily that I'm interesting. Ta- I'm going to take a, the proper psychologist <laughs> angle on this. I, I think a lot of the time, even these hypothetical imagined cases, people just engage in this egocentric bias. So if you're asking them what they would do in that case, they just project themselves into the situation. And we, you know, there is empirical evidence that even if you try to get people to stop projecting themselves into the situation, they still do it anyway. Um, So I think there's this natural instinct, particularly when it comes to moral values and moral judgments, that we just place ourselves in the shoes of a person in a situation, in a story. And when it becomes morally relevant, I think it's harder for you to separate yourself from that situation. I think there's also an interesting point to be made here in the way that philosophers, experimental philosophers and psychologists forcibly constrain their participants. They're like, you can either push or not push or pull the lever or not. Um, And I know, Catherine, you have some thoughts on this. And and I want to come back to that because I think the distinction between the affordances, the affordances of the situation in in a classic experimental setup are very different from the affordances in a D&D setup where you could go and have the birthday party, for example. But Catherine, maybe you could discuss briefly how putting people in these richer environments, even with the same constraints and affordances, kind of changes the way the brain works, or at least the way people are mediating their judgments through their brain. Yeah, sure. So obviously, there's these, these the classic trolley problem cases that we've just talked about. And Rowan really, you, you described the footbridge case really nicely there. And that case is, is talked about as this kind of up close personal moral dilemma. And what you typically find, if, if participants come into your lab and you present them with a text-based version of that case, most people, when you ask them, is it morally acceptable to push a person off a footbridge, sacrificing them in order to save five other people? Most people say it's not morally acceptable. And you can even ask people an action choice question instead. So you can say, would you do it? And for the most part, people say, no, I definitely wouldn't do it. And in fact, in most of my studies, it's kind of 70 to 90% of people say no way. Mm-hmm. Most people will allow the five workers to die so that they don't have to uh, metaphorically get blood on their hands. Exactly, exactly. And there's a, there's several different theories of moral judgment that try to explain why you see that response pattern. And some of them are kind of based around this, you know, this really visceral personal response that you have to engage in of physically harming someone. But there's also other other types of theories around that. And so some of my research has been really interested in what might happen if we can make those decisions sort of more contextually rich as they would be in in real life and maybe align them more closely to what an action choice would look like. Because if I ask you, what would you do in this hypothetical situation? Your response still feels to me like a moral judgment. So the idea of, of kind of constructing some of these trolley problems in virtual reality is to put people in the moment with all these contextual features at play, and then we get to monitor the action that they take in the moment of decision-making. Right, and for people who may not have experienced this, and it's not a super common experience, but the key things are time matters now, right? You can look around and perceive information in a way that is not available to you when you're just reading a, a paragraph. Yeah, exactly. So you've got you've got the time element, everything's happening in real time. As as the builder of that scenario in virtual reality, you have control over the speed of the train so you can make it as lifelike as you want. There's also visual and auditory salience, right? That a text-based 
vignette a text-based story just does not have and you build that soundscape yourself so for example we have versions of the trolley problem where the 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 bridge is quite high up, so you can hear bird song, you can hear wind in your ears. There's all those kind of atmospheric sounds. And then obviously you've got the sound of the train approaching and you can have the individuals on the track yell. There's all these extra features that just aren't in text-based vignettes. That just that just push out homo sapien buttons. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And then obviously it what we found really early on in these experiments was that individuals responding in virtual reality responded very differently. In fact, it's almost the reverse pattern of responses. So on paper, everybody says, no, it's not morally acceptable. I couldn't kill the person to save five others. In virtual reality, you tend to get around 60 to 70% of participants actually pushing the person off the footbridge. So a near perfect flip. And you also, in a, in a, in a manipulation that deserves an Ig Nobel Prize, you also created a man-sized, man-weighted dummy uh, that people actually had to push, right? They actually had to like fight a certain kind of resistance in order to do this. Yeah, so I worked with a speculative designer called Aggie Haynes, and she built this kind of sculpture of a large person's back that would sync with virtual reality. And it was made from platinum grade silicon. It had heated wiring underneath it. So it would feel like a human-like temperature. And it was weighted to the weight of someone that size. So if you did choose to push the person off the footbridge in VR, you'd have to kind of push forward with some force to be successful. In most cases, that would mean, you know, pushing with both hands. And even with that setup, we still got this really reverse pattern of response. Ethan, what are your thoughts on the relationship to one's individual morality or moral behavior or moral decision making and the richness of the environment? In short, I don't know, which is why I love Catherine's work so much. So let me tell you the traditional story about thought experiments and why her work is so interesting in light of it. So like I said, philosophy in many ways is built out of thought experiments. Plato's Republic, one of the founding works of Western philosophy, is essentially just a giant thought experiment to try to get at what justice is or how you would figure out what justice is. When philosophers try to defend this use, especially... 20, 30 years ago, when they were first starting to think about this question, why are we using these things? They would say something like, well, thought experiments are clean. Thought experiments are sterile. Thought experiments allow us to take away extraneous details that don't really matter and focus on the really core aspect of what's important to figuring out what what the deal with morality is. All of which are sensible premises, right? Certainly at that time and how they have their place, right? Right. And, and I mean, that's certainly what I was taught growing up, which is like, oh, great, like real, the real world is messy. Philosophy is about stripping away the messiness and figuring out the, the way in which things fit together in like the broadest, most abstract sense. And that's sort of the story. But over the last 20 years, partially in response to moral psychology becoming a, a developed field and partially in response to angry philosophers running experiments on how people react to thought experiments. There's all these findings now suggesting that all these weird details affect people's judgments. And I don't know, like maybe Catherine can explain it. My favorite to explain is like the the Pizarro stuff on race in trolley cases that finds that people's judgments about whether to push or not in the footbridge case appears to be appears to be driven by the the implied race of the people on the track and the people on the footbridge and that's affected by your political leanings as well just to clarify there Ethan you said 
Pizarro and not Bizarro, because I did hear like this Pizarro, kind of yes. this absurd approach. No, Pizarro is the author of the work. David Pizarro's work. Yeah, is he bad wizards? Yeah, he's very bad wizard. Which, just for clarification for anyone listening, is a podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a good podcast. Um, the so so there's all this there's all this evidence that actually the, our our judgments are pushed and pulled by all these what we call truth irrelevant features. Like it doesn't matter or we think it should matter what race the person on the footbridge is, but it does drive people's judgments. And this has caused a lot of unease among philosophers, which is like, well, I thought what we were doing was pure. I thought we were really good at this and we could just like view something like the trolley case, strip away all the details, say, all right, so what's important here? You're pushing, there's, and you're pushing one to say five. And we're sort of trained at, during during graduate school and undergraduate to approach these cases this way. The footbridge case is given. You're like, great. So what's important here? What's relevant here? You're pushing one for five. And uh, and it doesn't look like, like we think that way. It doesn't look like our judgments actually work that way. And the reason why Catherine's work is so interesting in this light is a lot of the things that cause concern for philosophers, there's this really obvious bad thing there. There's like, oh, it's the race of the case. Oh, it's how drunk you are. Oh, it's what order you consider the cases in. These, like whether you consider a case where you pull a lever to save five versus pushing someone to save, to save five, depending which order that's presented in, that may or may not affect what, what you think of, what you should do in those. But when you think about VR, it's not obvious that there's a bad thing there. Well, yeah, what does it mean it's not obvious there's a bad thing there? Because from my naive, and I mean that like from an expertise point of view, from my naive point of view, um, they look equivalent to me. What, what do you mean by that? Well, I think the very traditional answer by philosophers is that, well, what's different is that the VR is messy. The VR is time constrained. And that's bad because you don't really have the time to think through the situation. And I'm really skeptical that that messiness is a bad thing. And this is why I'm working with Catherine is to try to see if philosophers, when they actually do the VR, if they actually think the messiness is a bad thing or if they think it, it has a richness to it. Because I've become really pro-messiness recently. I have, as I've matured as a philosopher, I've, I've relied less and less on thought experiments and relied more and more on real tangible cases. And I find the messiness opens your, in, opens your eyes into seeing things you might not otherwise notice. You notice connections you might not otherwise notice. And I don't think I'm the only one going through this right now, uh, as philosophers are currently sort of rethinking how they do philosophy as a group. More and more people are dealing with like nitty gritty real things and I think are finding it quite useful and rewarding uh, of a practice. And so, yeah, I would, I would love, and we're working on this, I would love to see how professional philosophers, whether what they think about this difference in the the two mediums. Yeah, I, I too have come around to this idea of messiness as being valuable. And the idea that a vignette is clean and pure and atomized is maybe wishful thinking in some ways, because 
people are layering messiness into the situation already, whether it's the race of the five people on the tracks or on the bridge or on all of these other things. Are there, is the large man a morally bankrupt man? So, so Catherine, I, I wonder if maybe we can pull this back a little bit more towards D&D and tabletop role-playing. When we consider like the moral affordances of the situation, we, we think about a bridge in the trolley problem and it's, it's, it's on or off, it's push or not push. But in D&D, we can shoot a fireball at the tracks to snarl the tracks, right? And, and, and maybe there's a bit of a cost there. That's a spell slot I don't have. Or a big barbarian could sacrifice themselves, confident that they could be revived at a later point. Could you maybe speculate on the messiness of like the imaginary? Like the, how is it that exploring the affordances, the moral affordances, may be more interesting in a truly chaotic and unrealistic magical fantastical environment than maybe it is to consider a bridge over a, a yeah, railway. Yeah, definitely. There are two things I want to say really quickly. So the first thing goes back to um, the the idea of what your imagination does to these scenarios and how you change them and how they're messy regardless. So I've been doing some work with Nat Hansen recently where we've given people text-based vignettes but in a chat room setup. And then we probe their responses to these cases. And you you find exactly what you just said. So people will often imagine that the individual they're about to sacrifice is a particularly bad person. So we had individuals saying, oh, I imagined it was Hitler. I imagined it was Boris Johnson. <laughs> I imagined it was someone who, you know, had done something really bad. So people people do change those scenarios anyway. So even if they look very controlled, people are adding information that you've not given them. That's that's the first thing. Your main question is a really interesting one. And I think one of the only reasons why we're talking about two constrained responses in the trolley cases is because they were simply designed to pull out utilitarian preference. That's the only reason why you have the constrained response, right? Um, so they're, they're kind of capturing this characteristically in very bolded quotes, um, utilitarian response in the sense of sacrificing one life to save five other lives. To be fair, and I know this is not a like purely academic podcast, but it is worth saying that it was a, it was kind of a great leap forward to have this tool created though, right? Like 50 years on, we now have these profound and enduring criticisms, but at the time it like, it made a lot of sense and did a lot of good at the time, right? Yeah, and I think there is there's value in using moral dilemmas in a text-based format because they do offer a very constrained way of examining very specific moral schools of thought. That will always be an advantage. Um, but if we if we go back to D and D, again, it's it's kind of reframing the whole thing around rules and frameworks. So if I wanted to play a D and D game that was completely driven by utilitarian decision making. I could, as a dungeon master, make you make decisions that are constrained by utilitarian rules. Or at least present those dilemmas, right? Present those, yeah, present those cases to you and, and see what you do in them. But if I constrain the context, I, in a way, I still constrain your imaginative potential in that situation or the, po the possible actions you could undertake, um, which is quite interesting to think about. And what is so interesting, I think, about being a moral psychologist who also plays D&D is that there have been many games and many decisions made where I cannot help but think about all the different moral schools of thought that are coming into play in that very moment. Um, it's incredibly hard not to do that. <laughs> what's, a, what's an example of this? What's something that jumps out at you most? What's most salient to your mind? Well, I mean... <laughs> 
for me, virtue ethics frameworks just runs through my character all the time in D and D. And just for the uninitiated, what is a what, what is virtue ethics frameworks? Ethan can definitely answer that question. Uh, so virtue, <laughs> thanks for throwing me under the bus. Virtue ethic, virtue ethics says what it means to do good is to be a good person. So it's about acting bravely or kindly or um, virtue. Like virtuously that's circular it's about like being a good person as opposed to doing a, doing an act that has certain certain features so it's it's more yeah exactly and then that might that would that would i think for me the biggest case of that coming to fruition was during the D game with my character looper where for me the the virtuous thing the the right thing to do as a good person in that game was to leave the game yeah. My character left the game. What was the setup for that? So my character was put in a situation where I had rescued, well, I'd, I'd found an owlbear and I had gone and followed this owlbear and we'd found cubs. So there were young animals in this, in this D&D game. We then proceeded to go back to the camp where we were staying and there were the, some individuals there and, and a moral dilemma presented itself whereby I would have to hand over one or more of those young Albert cubs, potentially to a circus, wasn't it, Rowan? <laughs> it was to a circus. And the, the parent Albert, um was killed by a, a tamed hill giant. And so you couldn't leave the, the, the cubs, the kits, with the mother. The, the parent wasn't there. Um, and the circus didn't seem like a safe place by and large yeah exactly i i forgot about the mother being killed too yeah so the entire setup was very traumatic but in that right there in that moment my character could do nothing other than run with all of the babies right and this was a character you'd had for like more than 12 months yeah i was it was an 18 month character but probably that character is the character that i've connected with most in any game of dnd i've ever played with wow so uh, leaving with that character was emotionally traumatic for me but also for the other for the other dnd characters and the players i think yeah, no, I mean, that's a standout for me as a GM. That's a standout moment of just like, I remember that moment and I I expected the Albert to have died through, I don't know, player malfeasance. But when you brought them all back to the camp, I had the hill giant kill the parent, like in a shocking by fiat kind of moment, largely to kind of aggravate you as a character, um, not as a player, but like, because I knew looper would really struggle with that and then the other players at the the other characters at the table also had strong feelings one way or the other including your partner and yeah you you just kind of had to walk away from this situation and and things like that at least for me as a gm and a psychologist who's interested in pretend it's like that stuff's real that stuff bleeds into reality in a way that we don't often acknowledge i guess Ethan mentioned at the beginning there that he his real life friendship had potentially uh, diminished to some extent because of things like that. Yeah, the friction is real. It, fantasy infects reality and, and vice versa. Ethan, do you think it would matter much or is there anything worth speculating on the idea of, let's imagine the large man on the bridge. What if I could roll an insight check on him? Like, what, what do you think is going to happen when we expand the possible expand out possible understandings of those situations. Yeah, and I I like as much as I don't consider myself a traditional philosopher, I, I find that an abhorrent suggestion <laughs> because it's like against every bit of my training that right. I would that I would like do this because these as Catherine was saying these these cases 
I mean, the, the, the history of the trolley case is kind of complicated, but these cases are popular because they pick at some like deep, deep feature that we struggle with and like move it once you, once you insert like, well, I can know something about any of the six people. Suddenly it's not getting at this like deep vision between deontology and utilitarianism, which is, does not matter if what I do has the best consequences or is principled in some way or that I don't like violate someone's autonomy or I don't murder someone. And so, yeah, I, I like, I, I find it hard to even think about that question. <laughs> I, it kind of requires a ground truth to what the large man is. Right. right. And, and, and we know that that, that is, that is antithetical to the right. Point. Yeah. It's like, it's against the very nature of it. And that's why I, I think it's really interesting about this. What I think is really interesting about these non-traditional sources of moral insight, like D and D or video games is that it, it sort of forces you to think about these richer situations and the little bit of piloting we've done where we put philosophers in a VR version of the trolley case suggests that it kind of helps people to think past this sort of deep training we have where it in a couple of the participants they were like wait this is a weird case you know this like this case has features I hadn't appreciated before and it forced kind of a forced perspective on it so that doesn't answer your question about what it what it would take to have like an int or um, I, the, uh, an investigation. It doesn't. Check. It doesn't like. It doesn't really. It doesn't really answer your original question about what it means. To, what it would have to to include an investigation check, but it's just like. I think it addresses the spirit of the question, yeah. though, right? It, it doesn't make sense to right. do that. You could, but it's it's. It's odd and absurd. It's like using a hammer to to screw in a or screw in a screw. You know, it's like it, it's it's the wrong. You're doing the wrong thing with the tool you have. Sure. Uh, so I'd like to maybe I think I'd like to try and converge on the larger points both of you are making at this point. So Catherine, you mentioned as a player, as a human, you you struggle with running moral simulations in your head for what is good and what is bad, and how can I evaluate it within this framework. And Ethan, before we started chatting, you were talking about how can we learn moral things? And I know that you have a strong interest in kind of intuitions. Now, a thread in this podcast is also about like agency. So if I'm a player and I have a character, my character has agency. But when push comes to shove, uh, no pun intended, that's still an agency that comes from my brain, right? That's still centered in me somehow. So the question I'm driving at here is kind of how formal, how formal can our processing be of moral dilemmas when it's imaginary? To what extent do you think maybe you as players or players generally rely on intuitive heuristics? Or maybe to throw it to Catherine first, I I, I know from our relationship that you bleed into your characters and, and vice versa quite a lot. Does that mean your characters are kind of more principled than you can be just given that reality's messy yeah i think for the most part um i think this also rests on individuals moral identities in general so generally when you talk about moral identity you talk about this component of internalization which is how central your moral values are to who you are as a person internally and i think if you're high on internalization it's really hard for there not to be bleed (laughs) um What does that mean? What does high on internalization mean? It means that the decisions you make, the moral decisions that you make and the moral values that you hold are 
really a core part of your self-concept. The the other side of, of this, this framework is symbolization, and that's to do with the outward expression of your moral values in a social setting. So that's a little bit different. But I think if you are someone who has that quite strong self-concept and you have a firm understanding of what your moral values are, it is incredibly hard to detach yourself, especially when you become immersed in a narrative. And then if it's a moral narrative, it's incredibly hard to to separate those two things. And I think you... Or it can be. Yeah, right? it can be. I, you can absolutely do it. And I think with practice and experience, you can actually get incredibly good at it. And I think this, I mean, we can talk about this when it comes to actors as well, right? There are some phenomenal actors who really immerse themselves in the characters that they play. And I'd imagine there's a huge amount of bleed in different, I mean, so, I mean, think about the moral narratives in some movies. So, so quite famously, James Gandolfini really struggled with Tony Soprano over those the decade of The Sopranos because Tony Soprano was a monster and Gandolfini really, really struggled with who he became after after some number of seasons. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think I'm really interested in that, not only how your own moral identity bleeds into the, the moral identity of your character in a story and how you formulate that or express that within that narrative, I'm interested in that exact thing that you just spoke about, where it comes back out as well and how it affects who you are outside of that narrative. I think that is particularly interesting because in a way it's kind of scary, right? <laughs> if, if I'm going to go and play this really evil character, is it then going to impact who I am or what my moral values are in the real world? Or what your partner thinks about you if you decide to do something heinous. Exactly. And I, I'm sorry, I will morally judge you if you do horrible things in a game. What about your GM for giving you dilemmas? Will you morally judge that? Yeah. Oh, gotcha. Can I ask you about this? Maybe maybe you as a psychologist can teach me about myself for a second. You know, I, so like, I, I find when I, when I, play like any sort of role-playing situation i tend to play either the hero sort of the the very stereotypical hero or i'll play like a chaotic neutral character so that was the the D campaign i was talking about i was like a chaotic neutral elf who like really hated humans and that was and i wouldn't really consider myself like i think in in many ways like the chaotic neutral represents kind of an id in my personality where something i fight and like in in like real life, I'm very I'm very sort of by by the book rule based, but like I can always feel the urge to sort of just pull the fire alarm. pull the fire alarm or mess things up for the point, purpose of messing <laughs> things up. And I'll sometimes do this when I'm playing like board games with friends, and they always get really upset with me that I tried to that I like try to break the game while I'm playing it. And so I, I was wondering if like there's a sense in which I felt like inside me are two wolves. The really sort of buttoned up by the books guy, and then the the chaotic neutral prankster. That that this is what ends up ha- one of these two ends up coming out in the D and D game, but it's or in the or when I'm playing, I don't know. Pick your choice of role playing games. So some work that Catherine and I have been doing, and work that I've been thinking about for a good few years now, relates to this thing called cognitive quarantine, and it's it's work that's about twenty plus years now. And it's grounded in the pretend play literature of children. And it's very useful. It basically states that any given person recognizes that reality doesn't need to impact upon the fantastical. Like you and I can play uh, make-believe games of cops and robbers or Jurassic Park or whatever we want. And we, we know we're not constrained by reality. Similarly, we know that 
fantasy doesn't impinge upon reality. So that if I do a certain thing in the fantasy game, ordering a pizza, I know that there's no real consequence to that. No pizza will show up. I'm not going to have to pay for it. But that's never really been examined in depth in adults. But it feels to me like this idea of cognitive quarantine, this boundary between the, the imagined and the real, is not actually a very good quarantine. At, at best, it's porous, right? And I, I know we're delving into the world of metaphor here, but like, in what direction do you feel the seepage, the permeation? You know, how is that wrestling match happening? Do, do you find yourself going, I should be good, and like, that's reality bleeding into fiction? Or is it like, pull the fire alarm and that's fiction like bleeding into reality I think I th when i when i play chaotic neutral it feels like i'm letting my hair down so to speak it's like ah i get to actually like be not necessarily my true self but like be a part of me that doesn't get to be expressed mm -hmm. uh very often or i don't yeah I, I never really know because again at the same time like no part of me wants to go around and like throw paint in the middle of the street just because i think that would be funny or something like that like i that doesn't even cross my mind to happen in the real life i you know i look at the fire alarm and go oh i could pull that and that's sort of like there's no desire for me to to sort of take that next step but yeah there is there is like almost the sense of like there's there's sort of an aspect of my personality that i'm expressing that doesn't otherwise get expressed so in a sense, and hopefully I'm not being too generous here, uh, or, or too rich here, rather, this idea that there's some part of you that's not being expressed, that is reality bleeding into fiction, yeah, right? Yeah. But likewise, there's also, you're very aware of throwing the pain or pulling the fire alarm and real life will have major consequences. You can simulate that. And so you're able to kind of quarantine that desire. So you're actually... It strikes me discussing kind of a bi-directional relationship. It's, it's stuff is happening in both directions. Huh, that's really interesting. Yeah. It's also, I think a lot of the time we, we use these imaginative spaces to test our moral boundaries and we, and we test the consequences of the choices that we're making. I mean, there's some really lovely work in, you know, even in literature on moral narratives and the reason why we we told we've been telling moral stories to children for years right <laughs> there's a reason why we do that and so being able to engage in the narrative yourself allows you to test and experiment and play yeah with your own boundaries we're kind of coming towards the end here so i kind of want to tap a final question and i i realize i'm about to phrase it in a way that's going to seem quite confronting but i will couch it in dnd terms Let's talk about like the question of evil, right? Or or murder hobos for for a for a lack of a better way of framing it, right? There is something about being chaotic, which is qualitatively experientially different from being evil. I know Catherine at a, at our table. Well, no one in the table, no one at the table is specifically evil. You've certainly done things that are like morally reprehensible um, by accident, mostly. They they were often foreseeable. Um, but what is happening or what are your reflections as people who spend time thinking about morality, moral learning, simulation situations? What are your reflections on the question of evil and this idea of murder hobos? Can Catherine go first while I think of my answer? <laughs> sure. I think, I mean, this is where the, there's, I, I am, as you were asking this question, I just see overlap with questions around video gameplay and whether it promotes violence and aggression. And we know now that there's quite a lot of empirical evidence that shows that that's not the case. So for the most part, individuals recognize and realize that they are in imaginative alternative realities. And a lot of the time they're playing around and doing crazy things for the sake of it. 
So I think there's that there's that pocket we can talk about. There's also the kind of area that Ethan just talked about where it might be that, you know, there is a part of your personality or at least a desire within you to be chaotic in an environment where it's safe and where there aren't consequences. So, so there is there is a sense of really playing there, but in a chaotic sense. And I think that's that's a way of expressing yourself, which is important. So I think that's another area. And another thing worth thinking about is, is your own identity. So it might be part of your identity development to do things in these spaces that you wouldn't otherwise do in reality. And rather than it just being a way of expressing who you are, it might actually be a way of crafting who you want to be in the real world. And I think that's a really interesting question. And then there's the last pocket, which is the bit I'm really interested in, which goes back to bleeding both ways. And, and that takes us full circle because then that is concerning, right? Because if, if what you do in, a, in an imaginative space in some ways impacts who you then are in reality, I mean, I have huge questions and concerns about how that works, particularly in the context of moral psychology. But, but the whole thing goes full circle because then I can go back to the stuff on video gaming and say, well, actually, that's, that's irrelevant. There's empirical evidence that's that's not the case. So I think at the moment we're wrestling with all those different pockets of research. They all have different empirical evidence and they all have different consequences and outcomes. So if we can contribute to how those link together, especially that last question, I mean, there's there's profound consequences to that and probably amazing things we could do knowing that. I thought of my answer while Catherine was talking. Thank you. I think when we're talking about our relationship as a to a medium as like a consumer of a medium, we kind of overlook, or it's easy to overlook the way in which we can take different stances towards the medium. Uh, so like as a quick example, I think they're like, when you go to a haunted house, you, you see like two types of people go into the haunted house. One person's like scared out of their wits and the other's like, oh, that's an interesting way to set up a scare. And you see sort of like people take the haunted house as like a scary thing or uh, or sort of take it as like a, as a, as a person to be scared, they take the stance as a person to be, to be scared, or they take the stance as someone like observing the haunted house. And we, I, I think the the work I've done with Catherine in VR, we see this in VR as well, where some people like enter the VR and really see it as a moral situation. And I remember when I was, I, I put off doing the vignette for ages in the VR because I was like, well, there might be, I, I really want to like know what the experience I want to know what I think about the experience before I do it and maybe I could have some interesting insights but then I just set up the VR to run it and I put the goggles on started the VR went I wonder if the pushing works I pushed it the guy fell off the bridge and I went okay cool it works and that was like the first time I did it I I didn't I really just viewed it in this very I took this very mechanistic stance towards Mm. it and when it comes to to murder hobos you know, they might just be like letting their hair out and, but there might, I don't know, they might, there might be like a different stance going on here. Um, they might be trying to, there might be this wish fulfillment, but there, there might be like, I wonder if I can upset the DM or something like that. Or I wonder if I can sort of push the DM in this way. I don't know. I think maybe this is going in a different tangent, but often I think these different types of stances are encouraged by design, world design. Mm-hmm. And again, my, my expertise here is more video games. So like something like Fallout 3 or sort of the more RPG games, Wasteland 3 does a wonderful job of this where it is, the whole game is designed to put you in this like moral mindset where you're thinking about like, what are the consequences of what I'm doing? 
Whereas over lockdown, I got really into paradox interactive strategy games. And there you're playing as like Nazi Germany or colonial Great Britain. Mm. And you're like, you know, killing millions of people with your over the course of the game. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. And there, there isn't there isn't you're not encouraged by the game in that same way to sort of reflect and take a moral stance towards it. You can, in which case, like what you're doing seems monstrous. But in, I think in subtle ways, you're discouraged from doing that by sort of the way the the game is framed and the way various sorts of aspects of what you're doing are treated. In in some ways, I think evil might, to answer your question then, sometimes the evil, I think is probably people being evil, but in other ways, but in another way, it's, there's this more complicated story about like, what exactly our relationship to the narrative structure mm. of the interactive element is. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I'm about to ask you a question that I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. You know, what is the singular experience or situation that kind of lives in your head the most that has kind of left the strongest imprint on you. Um, but I'll just offer something while you're thinking about that. In terms of the question of evil, I've never run a game with murder hobos. Just as an aside, I don't like that term. There's a good argument that you're not murder hobos, you're actually murder tourists because you actually have all the power and all the money and you can just kind of buy your way out of consequences. So I don't like that terminology, but that's an aside. I was playing a game with some people from the internet and this wasn't a grim, dark, gritty game. It was a normal D&D fantasy type game. And the players were in a tavern and they'd found some informant who was generally pretty slippery and they'd gotten all the information out of them that I had prepared. And I couldn't see a way to get that character out smoothly. So I said that the NPC excused themselves to go to the toilet. And I thought, okay, that'll be the end of that. And again, this is not a grim, dark game. One of the players got his character to follow them into the toilet put a knife against their cock and threaten them for more information and as the dm i'm like no you've gotten all your information i they they castrated the npc and i'm like i think this was a virtual game but i you know i was running it i didn't see anyone's facial expressions but like i think we were all absolutely shocked at just like the level of escalation there and it's not like they were just murdering people to steal their stuff this was so callous that I didn't really even know how to respond. Like that's lowercase e evil, but that's like the most evil thing that has happened in my game. It didn't need to happen narratively or mechanically, but like that's what the player did. And then because they separated from the party, they came back out to the table and they're like, where did you go? It's like, I just had to go to the toilet too. Didn't even tell the other players. Didn't even tell the other characters that he just like castrated a man in the toilet. And it was like, wow, okay, that that is something else that that happened. I was not prepared for that. Uh, so that's something I actually think about a lot when it comes to the evil, this idea of a murder tourist or a murder hobo, that seems flippant. Yeah, they're just pressing the buttons in the game to see who they can piss off or what will happen. But this other event was closer to evil than I think I've ever seen in an imaginary space. And that's, there was nothing I could have done about it because it wasn't explicitly murdering the innkeeper for the gold. Uh, so Catherine, I know you brought up Looper before, but do you have any other kind of stick in your head moments from your tabletop role-playing career? There are many, many, um, what I, I, there, there have been many times where I've been kind of really shocked, morally shocked by other players' behavior, but, but there, there's also situations where I've, I've honestly felt guilt, um, that, that I've probably taken away with me outside of the game. So as a player, I've carried that afterwards. Um, so in one game, one of the other characters, uh, we'd taken someone 
kind of captive, I suppose. Um, but we didn't know anything about them or what they were doing. And then one of the other characters tied pots and pans to his feet so that he couldn't run away and left him outside of the tent overnight. And then we we were awoke to find that he'd been murdered by it was wild animals of some kind. It was worse than that. You you tied it to his arms and feet so he couldn't run away. And then you were all attacked and you were being attacked, but because he was restrained, he couldn't run away and he just got eaten by dire wolves or something in front of you all. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for reminding me. I obviously blanked it from my memory. Um, but that honestly, that that situation, just FYI, was not my no. fault. <laughs> but, but I also did nothing to rectify it. And I genuinely felt the guilt afterwards. And I, it, I took it away as a player too. I was shocked by what had happened. Well, and as a GM, that was gold for me because, uh, I mean, there are still echoes of that character throughout the game nearly yeah. three years on yeah that has actually motivated almost three years of campaigning in some ways so uh ethan what what kind of lives in your head rent free? i'll pick since i've been talking about video games i'll talk about one one video game and one role playing uh i sort of mentioned i mentioned wasteland 3 and there's there's a there's a i remember like that game really does an excellent job of doing this but I remember like I found it sort of I there was a situation where I was like I went to save like these women that were holed up away from the baddies. I went to I went to save them. I, I sort of got to them and then some like bad guys rolled up and said, all right, so either give us the women or we're going to like burn down a town or something like this, this sort of thing. And I went uh, and I closed the game and never picked it up again Whoa, wow. because I, could, I couldn't deal with the situation. Wow. And like, I still like, I, I've wanted to, the game's really good and I want to go back to it. But I just like, I can't, I like that just like hit me too hard. The other was for my D and D game. I, I was like, there was some downtime. We were downtime. We were in St. Andrews, medieval St. Andrews. And I, I like, I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm a forest. I'm like a forest elf. I'll go, I'll go out hunting. And the DM who again was a medievalist was like, set up this this confrontation where someone one of like the kings or it was the bishops one of the bishops knights came and like what are you doing hunting on the bishop's land and like he set up the situation where it's clear like i would my character would die if i if i like continued like insisting that i was going to keep hunting and like to this day when i think about setting up characters for a role-playing game i'm like i want to avenge I want to avenge that my character in that situation. I want to like get revenge for everyone in that situation who has ever been like told he can't hunt on, on the King's land. So I end up playing these like really sort of anarchist characters now because I'm like, no, you should be able to hunt on the King's land. That's awesome. So Catherine, you've just spent an hour listening to me. Uh, your colleague and friend Ethan Landis and yourself. How how do you feel about your own voice? Not not great to be honest. <laughs> but I did enjoy the conversation, so that that's a positive. Did you get the experience at all? Where I mean, sometimes I go back to things I've written years or months ago, and I'm like, I said that that was that was really good. Doesn't happen often, but it's nice to surprise myself with an insight or some piece of eloquence. Did did anything jump out at you? It's like um. I'm not sure how I answer <laughs> this says a lot about who I am. Right? No, no, but there was there was some there was some really nice organic conversation between the three of us, and I did I actually wrote down a couple of research ideas when I was listening re-listening oh, really? to our podcast together. Yeah, yeah. So what was it that kind of caught your attention? Maybe th those ideas are maybe a little bit premature to share, but like what was it that that you'd said once before and now caused you to reflect in a different way? 
there was this really interesting part where Ethan started talking about the messiness of of data and responses, right? And how there'd been this kind of interest in using vignettes because they're nice and clean and tidy and you can compare different principles and ideas. But then he'd become fascinated with this kind of more messy aspect. And I think you then said, you know, I'm I'm actually really interested in this kind of messy part. And it, it made me reflect on a lot of theories in moral psychology about moral identity and how they are actually quite clean. And overly they don't, clean. Overly clean. And they don't have this messy contextual part that accounts for what's going on in the environment around you and I thought well actually it might be quite fun to do some more some more studies on that and maybe mapping new types of moral identity theory that capture that messiness yeah certainly in research that would be well it's easy to execute that idea right but the the follow-up the analysis and the interpretation that's that's the real that's the real trick this is why sometimes I would prefer to listen to a an author of fiction, a great author of fiction to talk about human nature or psychology or morality or agency or something rather than a scholar in the field, because sometimes it's like, okay, well, you're just going to tell us that, okay, well, we can nudge people's responses around on a seven point scale. But if you listen to an author talk about conflict or something, I don't know, it feels sometimes, and not in all cases, but sometimes that that they deal so frequently and competently in the messiness makes it way more interesting. Yeah, I agree with you. In in many ways, it almost captures the um it captures some of the tension between quantitative and qualitative research philosophies <laughs> as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um and there's this really I mean, I I'm a quantitative researcher. I like numbers and I like dealing with this kind of positivist view of science that there's an answer to stuff, right? <laughs> um but that's probably not true of everything even though I live in that little ideal world um but there's a lot to say about using these really nice bottom-up nuanced approaches where you have this really rich dialogue before you start making building theories and testing them but don't tell anyone i said that okay good thing (laughs) this isn't being recorded yeah it's really challenging because i mean i too am a quant i think in grad school i was a prejudiced quant then i spent some time in an anthropology school and i came around a, a fair ways there uh, you and I previously worked together where there was a very strong contingency of qualitatives. I do sometimes struggle with the epistemology of qualitatives. Like if you're not generalizing, that's what I'm getting at in like the fiction, right? Because a, a, me- a, a good book that deals in a very large messy situation is going to ultimately present one neat solution to it or, you know, a neat-ish solution to it and ignoring all the possible other myriad options. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm just talking in circles here, but I, I too have come around to the qualitative sensibility, though I think it'll be a long while before I do that kind of research. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't have the skill set to do it either. Well, speaking for both of us, but maybe, yeah, I, maybe both are appropriate, but at different points. I'm not sure. But yeah, that came across me when we were talking about that messiness part. I found that quite interesting. So what about in the games you've played uh, with me or, or with others? Have there been messy situation so in in conversation you have brought up listeners will be sick of this at some point where your character just left the game right and that that was a morally very clean decision and even narratively a very clean decision have you had any experiences that were way messier i'm not sure i'm to be honest thinking about that experience i don't know how clean it actually was because (laughs) 
if we tried to analyze that as scientists and, and me with my moral psychologist hat on I'm thinking about the principles that drove the action, right? Mm -hmm. And it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to think about what justifies that action if I'm just thinking about the consequences of the action or and the action the action itself, right? Yeah. I didn't bring in a particular clean moral school of thought. Like it wasn't a utilitarian decision, it wasn't a deontological decision. It was a gut decision. It was a gut intuitive response. It was almost like an escape option. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting because looking at it as someone who was running the situation, to me, it looked clean because it was narratively clean. There's no loose ends there. It, it seemed externally very consistent and the world went on without you. That, that is true. Yeah. Unlike in real life, you know, you, you might break up with someone and externally, I guess that looks clean. You don't see that person anymore, but like it's messy in that there's emotions and there's artifacts and there's mutual friends and things so like i don't know it's i don't know how you would build that into a game of D D. that would be yeah. how to really embody messiness i mean that i can think of one example where we've you've crafted messiness quite well so the situation messiness or confusion <laughs> <laughs> definitely messiness not confusion but there have been situations where so i go back to i think i talk about this event during the podcast um where an NPC was killed because someone else in the group tied pots and pans to their feet. <laughs> so yeah. that character got killed in this really brutal way. But that that event, everyone, all of us, I think, were trying to pretend that hadn't happened. And so we were concealing it from other characters in the story. But there were always moments or situations where we had to end up telling people that that had happened or, you know, we we met that character's brother, right? Yeah. And so there was a there was this constant guilt and reminder about this event having happened. And so we we as as characters and players we were dealing with that for quite a a number of sessions after the after it happened. That's really interesting. I guess that is I guess maybe we're veering into our closing piece of like how would we change the practice of our game? Cuz when I when you killed that character, I'm like, "Ah, great. Now I can mechanically force you to make more decisions. And I wasn't necessarily thinking now I can make you feel guilty because I, I wouldn't ever try to like evoke that, an emotion, a prescriptive emotion. But now I can go, ah, now I can add a mechanic to the game where you get to make a choice, whether it's an honest choice or a deceptive choice or a violent choice. I, I didn't conceive of it as kind of morally messy in the first instance. I conceived of it as mechanically interesting. But I can see how players would have a totally have a richer view of that thing. Definitely. It basically crafted a moral narrative. Mm. It was almost like a moral decision tree. So there were several points where we were deciding, OK, are we going to be honest about this horrific event that took place or are we going to be deceptive? And then that might then lead to further consequences. It was almost like a one of these really interesting telltale games that you can play where you, you are... You, right in front of you have these kind of different moral choices you can make and they have their own consequences. And it make those are the kinds of narratives or the kind of decision trees that I think make D&D &D super engaging. And that's when presence is really high. I just think it completely absorbs you in the story. Yeah, so let's let's see if we can boil this down to something a bit more firm. How would one, sh how would a player maybe kind of change their game 
to wallow in the messiness a little bit? I think tracking past events and past actions is is really is a way that you could do this right right and bringing them up a lot more often bringing them up a lot more often and obviously the dm can do that too but i think as a character if you're trying to play with your moral self-concept in a game or you're trying to really keep your character's moral values at the forefront of your your gameplay that's something you can do is track the kinds of decisions you're making as you and how they would impact what you do next. As well as tracking how you respond to your other your your other co-players' behavior as well. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I, fe- I feel like many players have a heuristic of their party members. But if you were actually tracking, every time we go to a merchant, you threaten to kill them. Like, who am I running with? I don't want to be seen in town with this guy. Definitely. And I mean, if you want to take it really seriously, then that's when you should really take your you know, whether you're chaotic or Mm -hmm. neutral and good, right? That's when you really should play into that. Yeah. Because you can use that. You can essentially develop your moral compass from that. Yeah. And I'm thinking as as a DM here, it would be really interesting if, for example, out in the wilderness or on a mission or whatever, you could be best mates with the chaotic individual. But when you get to town, nah, I can't. We can't be seen together. Yes. That would create a really morally messy, socially messy scenario that, at least as a DM, I know we're splitting the party, but sometimes that can lead to the most interesting storylines. Yeah, definitely. And that pulls in really nice theories around social identity and moral identity then as well. So, And I do think it, that for any players who want to become more immersed in their D&D store narratives, so if anyone's looking to up their sense of presence this is one way that would really help thank you all for listening to mind games if you want to say hi visit our discord or visit mindgamespodcast.com about upcoming episodes and for information about our kickstarter for season two all links are available in the show notes please subscribe and pretty please write a review i have it on good authority that the spelling mistakes and autocorrect of those who write reviews are entirely ignored.